Hello and welcome to the second episode of Second Opinion. The subject for this episode is germ theory, fact or fiction. Medicine is an ever-evolving scientific discipline with endless new discoveries and cutting-edge research finding new frontiers for understanding and treating the body. From Louis Pasteur's work on germ theory in the 19th century, John F. Ender's work with viruses in the 1950s, to work on antibiotics in the 20th century, advances have been made throughout history to eliminate the cause of human illness, germs, namely bacteria and viruses. Illness is merely an unfortunate and unforeseeable consequence of interacting with nature and other human beings. The solution is to keep away from others and receive the holy grail of medical advancement, vaccines. However, some see modern medicine and germ theory as being based on an entirely false dogma and prefer to live by the principles of terrain theory, which posits that humans are responsible for their own health and that the symptoms and alleged causes of illness are in fact the body's natural mechanisms to detoxify and remove unwanted material from the body, material which humans either knowingly or unknowingly added to the body in the first place. Taking control of our health means taking control of the way we treat our bodies. Terrain theory advocates see big pharmaceuticals and vaccines as yet more toxins and counterproductive as well as potentially seriously harmful to health, sometimes even lethal. Germ theory says vaccinate the fish. Terrain theory says clean the tank. Here to provide a second opinion is Dr. Tom Cowan, a medical doctor. Cowan attended medical school in his home state of Michigan at the Michigan State College of Human Medicine. After graduating in 1984, he did an internship in family practice in Johnson City, New York. From 1985 until 2019, Dr. Cowan had a general medical practice, first in upstate New York, then for 17 years in Peterborough NH, and for 17 years in San Francisco, until his recent retirement from active practice. He formerly served as vice president of the Physicians Association for Anthroposophical Medicine, Dr. Cowan has given countless lectures and workshops throughout America on a variety of subjects in health and medicine. He is the author of six books. Five of these books spent time on the Amazon and or Barnes and Noble bestseller lists, and each was ranked number one in their respective categories, often for many months. Dr. Cowan is the author of several books, including Human Heart, Cosmic Heart, Vaccines, Autoimmunity, and The Changing Nature of Childhood Illness and most relevant to current events, the contagion myth. I will be talking with Dr. Cowan about germ theory, v terrain theory, natural healing, and of course vaccines, as well as exploring a new vision for the future of healthcare and caring for our bodies and communities. Glad to be able to talk to you today, Dr. Cowan. If you could tell us, Tom, how did you get started on this path as a doctor and then into the, the more alternative route that you took later on? Well, I never took an alternative route later. I, when I decided to go to medical school, I had already decided that conventional medicine was not for me. And I thought I needed to get a degree in order to be effective as working in the field and also to learn what they knew. Uh, but from the beginning, which was 1985, I've basically been 
doing an increasingly, hopefully better version of what I did up until recently. Went to college, I basically didn't like very much of what I've heard, but of course I didn't really know any alternative. And so then I decided to do anything but be a doctor. So I joined the Peace Corps and taught gardening in Swaziland for two years. And it was there I was given books by uh, Rudolf Steiner and Weston Price, which made me realize that the kind of doctor that I didn't really want to be was not the only kind of doctor there was, and that there were much different ways of looking at the world. And so I've been basically pursuing those ever since. You know, I basically worked for a while as an emergency room doctor just to mostly to make money and then have had a private practice for about 36 years until last year and I basically retired and now doing other things. People new to you obviously your position is terrain theory as opposed to germ theory which is what dominates the medical system worldwide. Could you explain the difference between germ theory and terrain theory, just so people kind of know where you are for the rest of the interview? So I, I actually don't usually use the word terrain theory. I know, I know that that's a common way to describe it, but uh, I don't think it's as clear as I would like it to be. Uh, the basic idea is that uh, do germs, and particularly when we say germs, we mean bacteria and now more especially viruses, do they cause disease or is there some other reason why people get sick? And so I've been looking into this for, you know, 35 years, first trying to mostly with viruses and then lately, well not lately, but over the years on and off with more bacteria. Uh, And the steps are, A, can you find such a thing as a virus from sick people? And then if you find it, then can you demonstrate that that little particle called a virus actually causes disease in animals or plants or people? And the surprising thing that I found over the years is that if you define a virus as a particle, which, so the first thing is a thing. And I say thing because that's different than a thought or a feeling or a conception or something in somebody's imagination. It's at least in the normal world considered to be a real thing. Right. And it's a thing that has a protein coat and then it has a some genetic material, either DNA or RNA on the inside. So the first question is, uh, if you look into the medical literature, and now we're going back to the 30s when they first developed an electron microscope, which gave the ability to see particles the size of viruses. And we know that because they could see things called bacteriophages, which are essentially virus-like particles that live in bacteria. And we've seen so-called giant viruses, which are virus-sized particles that live in things like sea algae. So it's not a technical problem. We have the ability to find 
pathogenic or disease-causing viruses in sick people. But to my surprise, I discovered that there is not one case of a pathogenic, i.e. disease-causing virus that has been properly isolated, characterized from any bodily fluid or tissue of any sick person. I'd have to jump in there because, you know, it's my job as interviewer to challenge what you say. What about doctors and virologists worldwide who claim to have identified viruses? And obviously, you know, a lot of people would find that a staggering statement. Uh, I can guarantee you they won't find a uh, scientific reference that has demonstrated that any pathogenic particle, the size, characteristics, or makeup of a virus has ever been isolated from a sick person, not once. And so the question then is why are there, let me just take a guess, uh, 150,000 papers that have something like the title being the isolation and characterization of such and such a virus. Right, right. I don't know how many exactly, but let's say 100,000. Yeah. So how did, they, how did they say that? So let me just say, first of all, the, the fact that no virus has been directly isolated from any sick person is not actually my opinion. Um, the Christian Drosten said that in his paper, they didn't isolate the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The spokesman for the Robert Koch Institute in Germany, which is sort of like the CDC of Germany, said that point blank. Yeah. So the CDC in the United States has said that. Approximately 10 different countries around the world, when asked from freedom of information requests, do you have any paper showing the isolation and purification of a virus directly from any sick pe person have said no? Yeah. So, so yeah, that's no, not I, my I, opinion. That's yeah. just the fact. And this whole thing goes back to 1954. Um, so between the mid-30s and the early 1950s, and the reason that those dates are important is that's when they had an electron microscope so they could actually see particles the size of viruses. The virologist or biologist in those days came to the same conclusion that I did. They couldn't find any uniform particle. Uh, they found particles for sure, but not anything that would be uniform or be regarded as a pathogen. So they essentially disproved virology. But then along came a guy named John Franklin Enders, and he did a series of experiments that got him the Nobel Prize. Uh, he worked with polio, which is considered a viral disease, and measles, which yep. is considered a viral disease. And here's what he did. Uh, he took the secretions from a child who had measles, in other words, like the mucus. Now, people have to remember that we're looking for a, a small particle that has a protein coat and it has genetic material inside. So that's the game we're playing. So the last thing you would want to do is mix any other uh, particles or pieces of genetic material into your experiment. Right. But in fact, what he did was he took these secretions 
and then he uh, put it into two milliliters of milk, which is interesting because milk has a lot of genetic material. And then he took that uh, swab in the milk and he inoculated it, which means spread it on something called Vero cells, which are made from monkey kidney tissue, another yep. source of genetic material and proteins. And then he mixed in horse serum and bovine fetal serum and bovine embryonic fluid. So now we have five different sources of genetic material and unpurified mucus from a sick people person with God knows what in it. So we have, we have the original snot, we have milk, two kinds of fetal tissue, horse serum, kidney tissue. And then he inoculated it and nothing happened. So then the next step is he withdrew the nutrients from the culture. And that's called minimal nutrient medium. In other words, he starved the tissue culture. And interestingly, nothing happened. And then he added penicillin and streptomycin, which are two antibiotics, which are also toxic to the kidneys. Yeah, and yeah. then the kidney tissue broke down into millions of little different sized and shaped particles. And he said that was proof that there was a measles virus uh, killing the kidney tissue. Now, interestingly, he was one of the few who did a kind of control. So he did the whole experiment, except he didn't use anything from anybody with measles. So he just took, put nothing, and then he just put the, the serum and the milk and the antibiotics on the kidney tissue. Yeah. And he said, yeah. quote, the results were indistinguishable to any rational human being would say, there was no effect from anything from anybody with measles. And that became the definition of isolation of, the vi of a virus. So every single isolation experiment, you can believe this or not, has reproduced those exact same um, steps. And that's what they call isolation, every single one. And I can back that up myself because I've looked at endless papers and seen the same methods used. Um, do you think virologists use this technique just to get published in scientific papers? Do you think that they must have some idea that what they're doing, adding in material like antibiotics and starving the cells, would cause them to break down into particles and would cause the tissue to break down? Or do you think they've just learned a certain way to do it and they think that is the right way to isolate a virus? I mean, you know, you're going to have to ask them. All I can say is I've recently had a conversation with some virologists that wanted to prove Andy and I wrong. And they claimed this was the proper way to isolate a virus. They said, quote, you can't, there isn't enough to see it if you don't, quote, concentrate it like this. Now, the interesting thing about that is there isn't enough to see it uh, even if we said, well, what about if you collected 10,000 people and pooled their mucus? Would, yeah. you, would that be enough to see it? And they said no. <laughs> uh, 
which mm -hmm. makes you have to ask the question, if there's not enough to see it, even on an electron microscope, even 10,000 people, how, how do, you know do they there? explain that it's about to kill us all? Yeah, and how do you know it's there? I don't know the answer to that. And then they said, one of them said, we don't starve the tissues in our tissue culture. We take good care of them. And I said, do you use minimal nutrient medium? Because I've looked at, I don't know, 50 to 100 papers, and everyone did that. Yeah. And she said, yes, but we only <laughs> do that during the experiment. Yeah. And I thought, that's bizarre, because of course you only do it during the experiment. You don't do it during the time when you're trying to keep the tissue culture alive. Like, yeah. That would be really stupid. And then uh, they deny that uh, antibiotics are toxins. Even though nowadays they don't use penicillin and streptomycin, they use genomycin and amphotericin. And if anybody looks in the PDR or the Bible of, of drugs, the, they are listed as potent nephrotoxic drugs, meaning toxic to the kidneys. And it's interesting because if you do this same procedure and you use like human lung cells, which you can also culture, the so-called SARS virus doesn't grow, uh, which is bizarre because that's how they prove that it causes human disease. But yeah. the fact of the matter is I have a paper from the CDC saying that it doesn't grow in human epithelial lung tissue. Yeah. Now, I think if they want to make it grow, they should try to find some uh, lung toxin and then they'll see the virus growing. Because the other factor to take into account is these pieces of genetic material, which are now called exosomes or extracellular vesicles. I have a paper from May 2020 in a journal called Viruses that says, and I quote, the ability to distinguish an exosome from a virus, it does not exist. In other words, nobody on the planet now can say, that little particle you're seeing came from a virus or it came down from the inevitable starving and poisoning and breaking down of your own tissues. They say that viruses contain genetic material because obviously they're exosomes and they come from our own tissue and that that's, they would have genetic material even if a virus was real. Why would it have our genetic material? Wouldn't it be unique, surely? I mean, when, when you poison or starve or both any tissue that has genetic material in it, RNA or DNA or both, you're, they're going uh, to come out in little packages uh, as the cell essentially, you know, breaks down and detoxifies. There's nothing new, strange, pathogenic, or bizarre about that. All it yeah. means is something has broken down the tissue. And because the tissue has its own genetic material, they've confused those for exogenous viruses. So the whole concept of a virus is frankly a misconception. And the best way to think about this for people who haven't heard it is, if I said to you, so I looked around my neighborhood and I looked for little pieces of paper and I didn't find any, except maybe one or two little scraps. And then I came back a month later 
And the two old decrepit houses on my block, they were blown to smithereens and there was millions of bits of paper scattered on the lawn. Uh, now, I thought about that for a while and then I said, I know what happened here. Those little bits of paper that were there a month ago, they injected themselves into the house. They reproduced inside the house. They blew up the house and scattered themselves all over the lawn to find the next house to infect. You would think this guy is a lunatic. Right. But that's exactly viral theory. Not, the only steps in that they've seen are there's no paper to find, there's no virus to find in the beginning. And then if you blow up the tissue, there's a lot of virus to find then. And then a little boy with a bicycle comes riding by and says, hey, mister, about two weeks ago, somebody came with dynamite and blew up the house. And yeah. of course, you dismiss him because what do little boys on bicycles know? Right. Because we think Dostoevsky blew up your house. What, has it ever been visualized under an electron microscope, the virus actually budding into a cell and exploding it and escaping? No. They've never seen that. Every image of an electron microscope is, is an artifact, meaning that in order to make an electron microscope picture, you have to uh, basically kill the tissue, you have to freeze it at 150 degrees centigrade, you have to uh, macerate it or put it in some sort of a blender, and then you have to stain it with heavy metal dyes, so that the only thing you actually see are the insoluble parts. And then you put it in an electron beam, which immediately evaporates all the water in the tissue. So all you're seeing is basically the sort of debris or whatever it is that will pick up heavy metal stains. Now, you can do this and find, you know, uniform bacteriophages or giant viruses. So there's some use to this. You see them as perfect geometric forms, all the same size. They all have the same genetic material. They all have the sequence, the same sequence in their genetic material. We know how to pull out even something the same size characteristics as a virus. That, however, has never been done with a pathogenic virus. Not because you can't, but because it's just not there. Just going back to germ theory, what about people who say, you know, uh, I was at the party the other day, or I was, you know, out with some people and they, one or two of them were ill, and then a few days later or a week later, I got ill. How would you ex explain that that's not contagion? So the, the first thing I would say about that is uh, we have an observation and these are called epidemiological observations. And if you think that epidemiological observations can determine the cause, then that is a completely unscientific position that no actual scientist holds. The purpose of epidemiological observations is to generate hypotheses, which can then be proven, say, in a laboratory. So. But if you still think that if a lot of people in the same place get sick, it must be a virus, 
then you must think Hiroshima was a virus. And if you think that because something spreads from one person to another, it must be a virus, then you must think that uh, Chernobyl was a virus. And also, we used to think for 200 years that, that sailors got sick on ships and then one sailor after another, and that was must be something contagious. And then they would go to a port and then the next ship would get the same sickness. So there must be something contagious. And then someday somebody ate a lime, which is where the word limey came from. And the whole thing went away because it turns out they had scurvy. Right. So you need to be very careful with using epidemiological observations to uh, prove causation of an illness. The other thing I would say is we have actually proven that that observation, you got sick and then somebody else got sick a week later, it can't possibly be a virus. So we know that. And I would say it has to go in that order because if you still believe in the virus, you need to show the virus and show that the isolation of that virus causes sickness and that has never been done. And when they tried to do that, they've disproven it. <laughs> now, the next thing is that means if you think that proves it's a virus, you must think that the only thing that can be spread from person to person is a virus. So I would love to hear an explanation that if you put 20 women of 20 year old women in a cabin for a year and they all menstruate at the same time, that that proves they had a virus. Because as far as I know, nobody thinks that. Right. Um, even if you walk into a room and you start laughing or smiling or yawning and then other people do, as far as I know, nobody has proven that that's a virus. So when you look at this, of course, there's been almost no research on this. So it's very hard to say, well, I have this study that proves this because for 150 years, you are only allowed to consider microbiological cause. Um, but I would look at things like there probably is a similar toxic influence, you know, maybe electromagnetic fields or maybe somebody spread uh, arsenic or sprayed it with DDT or, or glyphosate or something. So that's the first place to look. Maybe there's some other sort of emotional or, you know, more resonance phenomena, energetic phenomena that's being passed. We have a very impoverished view of the world, and we think the only thing that can pass between people is this mythical creature called a virus. And it's a huge disservice in trying to figure out what really has happened to people and why do they actually get sick. Because it turns out, just like these viral cultures, most of the people get sick because they're starved, poisons, or diluted. First kind of virus people would point to as say well what about this virus would be the flu i guess you know you would say that that's never been proven to exist but why do people always seem to get ill around the same time of year as they say the flu spreads you know maybe bad food maybe not enough sunlight uh the other thing when you start thinking about this you also have to realize that the conventional medical view of what we call sick is frankly incorrect. 
And here's what I mean by that. If you get a splinter in your finger and you don't take it out, the next thing that happens is you get pus, right? Right, yeah. Is that an infection or is the pus a therapeutic mechanism to get the splinter out? Second one. Right. So here's another example. You put debris in your lungs. That's called smoking or breathing the air in most cities. And then, yeah. then you make a cough with mucus and fever to try to get that debris out of your lungs. Is that cough and mucus and fever, is that a disease or is that a therapeutic response? Therapeutic. Right. So that which we call sick is your body's attempt to clear out some debris from your tissues. Now, the other thing is if the other way you can do it, if, for instance, you have something that destroys your tonsils or makes your tonsils not well, um, could be, you know, putting metal in your mouth. It could be a poor diet. It could be lots of things. So your tonsils start dying. And then the bacteria, which are always living in your mouth, they're called strep, they come to help recycle the dead and dying tissue. That's mistakenly called a bacterial infection. And then they mistakenly kill the bacteria, which makes the symptoms go away temporarily, but then you still have dead and dying tonsils, and then usually it happens over and over again, which is exactly what you see from people who take antibiotics. So even the whole phenomena, why do we get sick? Because you, know, you have something to clear out of your tissues, your body uses bacteria to help digest it, just like if you cut a tree down in the forest, the bacteria and fungus come to recycle the tree, and nobody says the forest has an infection. That would be ridiculous. But unfortunately, that's how doctors think. So either that happens or the tissue breaks down. When the tissue breaks down, it releases these thousands of variety of different genetic particles, which are mistakenly called, called viruses. That thing of being sick is... A, a therapeutic response, and it should be not that surprising that you may have a common toxin with people that you're in general contact with, and maybe even they tell you, like trees communicate, now it's time to do this therapeutic response. And so there you think of that, somehow that was a contagion. It's actually a sophisticated way that organisms communicate to tell each other now it's time to do something good for your health so in other words then what we call the flu could be just like a yearly cleanse for the body the body realizes is that time coming up again and it needs to kind of detox itself yes and that fits all the facts including the fact that if you stop people from getting these so-called acute illnesses they always end up getting more cancer. And that's been known for 100 years, simply because if you put debris in your lungs and you don't let somebody get it out, the debris builds up. That happens for 20 years. Now they have a bag of debris in their lungs and we call that cancer and we say, I don't know what happened, it must be because you smoked. We get sick because we're starved. Uh, that's the vitamin C, scurvy, beriberi, 
same thing, killed millions of people. They thought it was infection. Turned out it had something to do with corn or some B vitamin. Pellegra, same thing. There's a long history of the medical profession being wrong about all kinds of things and ascribing infectious causation to things that are basically caused by starving or poisoning or electromagnetic fields or radiation or glyphosate or putting particles of aluminum in the air and having everybody breathe those. And then more importantly, lately, injecting them directly with poisons, otherwise known as a vaccine. Right. I want to talk about vaccines. One of the questions people would have is they say, you know, but they induce antibodies. How does that work? How is their antibodies if a vaccine doesn't work? So I have a little, uh, it's sort of a skit I tell people about antibodies. So you want to hear it? Yeah. So it goes like this. Uh, antibodies are very important for understanding our immune system and for understanding infection. So here's how it works. Uh, first of all, when you get a virus, you have the virus infection for two weeks. And then you make IgM, which is a nonspecific antibody, and that lasts for two weeks. And then you make IgG, which is specific for that virus, and that lasts the rest of your life. The reason for the two and a weeks for each is that viruses and antibodies understand the concept of weeks. <laughs> and so one of the ideas to shorten the uh, viral infections was to change the week to a six-day week. And there's some evidence that then you'll only be sick for 12 days instead of 14 days. <laughs> so let's apply that to some cases. So if you have mumps, that's caused by a virus, and then you get uh, the antibodies, and then you're immune for life and never have mumps again. So we know that antibodies mean you've had the virus and you're immune for life. And let's take another case, uh, measles. So measles, you get measles, you get antibodies, and then you're immune for life, except there was a court case in Germany in the Supreme Court that ruled there is no evidence for the existence of measles virus, so let's forget about that one. Now, chickenpox, same thing. You have a virus, then you make antibodies, and then you're immune for life, except if you get shingles, which means that you get the same disease just in a different form, but that's because the chickenpox virus is a kind of smart virus and knows how to evade the immune system, or I would say it's smart-ish. Now, if you take the case of HIV and AIDS, what we know is that if you have symptoms of AIDS that, and you have elevated antibodies, that means you're going to die of a deadly virus. Because we all know that having antibodies to a virus means you're going to die from the virus. Uh, yeah, well they, say, well, they say it means you have the virus, don't they? They say it means you're sick from the virus. Same with hep C. So you have the virus, you have antibodies. Antibodies mean clearly that that means you're, you are going to be made sick from the virus. So that means, on the one hand, if you have antibodies, you're immune to the virus. And with HIV, it means the virus is making you sick. 
Now, uh, I have a quote in our book from a, the head of infectious disease from Wake Forest, who, asked, who was asked about antibodies to SARS-CoV-2 virus. And he gave a very, I would say, erudite statement, uh, which I can quote to you. He said, quote, antibodies to the coronavirus mean you either had the virus or you didn't. <laughs> you were either sick or you weren't sick or you're immune or you're not immune. And I was so impressed by his statement because I needed a new refrigerator at the time that I went to the refrigerator store and I asked the guy, what do you think about this refrigerator? And he said, it's a good one. It'll either keep the food cold or it won't. <laughs> and I said, yeah. I'll buy three of them. Right. In other words, antibodies mean nothing. If you go to an infectious disease doctor and you say, I have chronic fatigue and I have elevated antibodies to Epstein-Barr, he will say, everybody knows antibodies mean nothing. If you think you have Lyme disease and you get a test and it shows elevated uh, antibodies to Lyme disease, you go to an infectious disease doctor, he will say, you're a lunatic. Everybody knows antibodies mean nothing. If you have antibodies to mumps, he says you're immune for life. If you have antibodies to HIV, he says the virus is going to kill you. And all I can say is I think that all the concept of antibodies was made by the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> they say that antibodies bind to antigens identical to the antigen, the virus. In other words, it triggered the immune response. Are antibodies just binding to exosomes? Is that what they're actually binding Antibodies to? Are, are made when you have foreign proteins or toxins, and they're the last defense of the body. They're not specific to any viral anything. They're just the body's way of, we tried to poop it out. We tried to, to pee it out. We tried to sweat it out. We even brought in bacteria to eat the tissue. None of that worked. So we got all these poisons in our bloodstream and our tissues. So we're going to bind them to antibodies and hope for a better day. That's why you see elevated antibodies in sick people, because they're more poisoned than the not sick people. Otherwise, it means nothing. A lot of people have a lot of concerns about the vaccine. Is there anything people can do if, if they get side effects from the vaccine to reverse the effects? No. Is that possible? No. Would you care to elaborate on that one? There's no evidence that you can ever get any of that those poisons out of your system. Okay. So I, I have no idea if that's possible. I I would doubt it. And the only way is to not get that in the first place. I agree. I know that you take a very different view of the immune system, what it is and what it does. We, we don't have an immune system. Right, yeah, but that, that's kind of what I was getting at. Um, so what, what do you think about immune suppressant drugs? Because they are prescribed to people. And to me, it, it, sounds like, it sounds like a bit of an oxymoron. You're suppressing the immune system. How can that be a good thing? Curious to know what you what's think. What's happening is you're, those people like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or one of those, quote, autoimmune disease, they're poisoned. And so they're making inf inflammation to get rid of the poisons. It's like they're a person full of splinters. 
So naturally, they try to make a lot of inflammatory response to get rid of the splinters. That's called an immune response. It's nothing of the sort. It's just the body's natural and inevitable way of getting rid of debris. It's the only way we have. You, if it's in your lungs, you make mucus to cough it up. Um, if it's in your joints, it's harder because we don't have a way out of the joints. So you make antibodies to neutralize it, and then they stop you from making antibodies, which temporarily relieves the symptoms because now you're not trying to get anything out. You're just getting more and more poison. And the reason I know I'm correct is if you go to any rheumatologist's office and say, how many people have you cured of whatever disease with your, quote, immune suppressing drugs? The answer is exactly zero. Just going back to the subject of vaccines, can you explain where this claim of 95% effective for the COVID-19 vaccine has actually come from, how they work that out? The claim of 95% effective is basically they, they just uh, do tests to see who, which people have reduction of their symptoms uh, or don't get symptoms, and they manipulate how that comes about. And so they say, you know, there's a 95% reduction when it's nothing of the sort. The, the best way to understand that is if I did a trial of a heart drug, right? And I put 10,000 people, well, let's make it easier. A thousand people took the drug and a thousand people didn't take the drug, right? And I say, after five years, what, how many heart attacks in, what, in each group did they have? Everything was the same. So then you end up, the people who didn't take the drug, two out of a thousand people had a heart attack. In the people who did take the drug, one out of a thousand people, right? That's 0.02% versus 0.01%. And I may have got the decimal point wrong, but something like that. So what's the difference in the effectiveness of that treatment from your point of view? 0.1%. Right, 0.01%. Yeah. So that's what a normal, rational person would say. A doctor would say that's a 33% reduction. Now you say, how did he get that? Well, three people had heart attacks. Two of them didn't take the drug. One did. So 66% of the heart attacks were in the non-drug and 33% were in the drug. That's a 33% reduction. It's also completely irrelevant. And now the other interesting thing about it is that when they report side effects of the drug, like who died of cancer, they'll say, well, it's only 3% in the drug and 0% in the non-drug. So that's an only a 3% difference. <laughs> so yeah. they use what's called absolute numbers in reporting side effects. The fact of the matter is with these COVID injections, something like 60 to 90% of the people will have a significant untoward reaction or otherwise known as a poisoning. And all they've been tested on is a a insignificant reduction of symptoms. That's the only parameter they measure. Where does that 
60-90% figure come from how good people? It comes from that. people uh, doing uh, compiling actual stories of people who've been vaccinated. I know, I know there are um, records kept of adverse reactions. Um, There's like, voluntary records, which are, they usually catch about 1%. Yeah, well, there's the various databases, isn't there, in America? And here in Britain, we've got the yellow card system. Right. Um, but I'm aware... Those are wildly inaccurate. And if you read the their literature on the number of people who have adverse reactions, um, including getting, like, cold and flu-like symptoms, it's astronomically high. On what basis? How would people... They can go to their website or... There's a bunch of websites that are tracking adverse reactions. Basically, what can people do to take back control of their health? What can people do who are, even though, even though they may not realize it, suffering the symptoms of what is claimed to be a virus, but it's because of toxicity and it's because of EMF. And that's one thing I could ask you about if we had longer EMFs. What do you recommend people do to be healthier? I mean, the first thing they have to do is is learn about this and learn how, you know, lied to they've been. And then they have to learn about what does make them sick, which is not very complicated. It's it's, you know, doing, quote, unnatural things like never going outside and never moving your body and eating food that's not food and breathing toxic air and standing in front of a computer all day and using wireless devices and fluorescent lights and injecting themselves with poisons and spraying poisons on their food and and having delusional ideas and all I, you can go on there's infinite number of combinations of way people poison themselves so insofar as you're able and the thing I would say is once you get the, uh, the hang of this, the world will help you out and show you things and ways to go about helping yourself. That's sort of the miracle behind this is that there, there is sort of these, for lack of a better word, you know, benevolent or I would call them angelic forces, which actually do want to help us. And right. you will start seeing things in your life that you didn't, you never would have believed possible. But you have to take the step of saying, I am not going to believe this nonsense anymore. I don't, maybe now I don't know what to do. Don't worry about it. The world will help you out. Synchronicity. It's a lot of words for it. It's called life. Yeah. yeah. But if you don't take the first step, if you insist on, having, you know, what I would call delusional ideas, then there's no room for any new information or miracles to come into your life. The world is full of miracles. It's full of, of the exchange of gifts and exchange of, of love and warmth. And people will do that. But you have to be ready to accept it. And that's the problem. If you live in fear and distrust and hatred and lies there's no room for anything to come in i read somewhere i forget the doctor's name but he published a book and he researched on the idea that what we call pain 
it was in relation to back pain, but I guess it meant pain in general, is actually a distraction technique from, uh, like I guess like a psychological distraction technique to stop you facing things that would cause you emotional pain or things that you don't want to face. What, what do you think about that? That things like back pain and other pain could actually come from trying to avoid certain emotional situations. I mean, I, I tend not to make blanket statements. The way I did medicine was every person had a story. And the one story, maybe they fell off a horse, and that's why they have pain. And the yeah. next story may be avoiding emotional situations. So it didn't seem right or fair for me to prejudice the story. Everybody has a story. That's what a human being is. is a, it's the story of your life. And I, don't wanna, I didn't want to be restrictive, and every back pain is that. Because right. if you fall off a horse and your back hurts, it right. doesn't necessarily because you're an emotional wreck. Right, right. So I, I tried to be realistic, and I developed a technique of eliciting the story, and then I could almost always tell the person, here's what happened to you, and therefore here's a way you can fix it if you want. The last question, um, where do you see society going? Where do you see the health system going? Suppose that people do kind of, turn around to the idea of terrain theory and that idea that it's the way you treat the body that causes illness is nothing from the outside where do you see society going and on the flip side of that if people carry on as they are where do you see if things don't go well they're gonna uh basically merge us with computers yeah that's true yeah. your life will be on a digital platform completely controlled if things do go well, we can usher in a new era of peace and prosperity and health and connection and spirituality that I don't think human beings have ever experienced. And which way it's going to go, I have no idea. If we were going to build a new kind of health system tomorrow and you were kind of in charge of um, deciding what it would be, what would you institute? What would you create? I would say that basically all healthcare institutions uh, and research centers, etc., can go on just as now. The only difference is all of their funding would have to come from bake sales. <laughs> from private individuals as opposed to... No, bake sales. Cor corporate influence, you mean? Like they have to sell cookies and yeah, yeah, but yeah, from from real people as opposed to like corporations and. No, and, I mean bake sales. <laughs> okay. And if they do good work next year, they can sell lemonade too. Right. Okay. That should do it. <laughs> okay. Um, I wish we had longer. It's been a fascinating interview, very informative. Um, okay. and, and thank you very much. All right, Daniel. Do take care. Bye. Bye-bye.